I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Our guest today is Dr. Kristen Collier. She is an assistant professor of internal medicine at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where she serves as the director of the University of Michigan Medical School Program on Health, Spirituality, and Religion. She also serves as an associate program director of the Internal Medicine Residency Training Program, where she oversees the primary care track. She has received her medical degree from the University of Michigan Medical School and completed her internship, residency, and chief residency at the University of Michigan Hospitals. Her work has been published in JAMA Internal Medicine, the Annals of Internal Medicine, the American Journal of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, and others. Kristen, thanks so much for coming on today. Erin, thanks for inviting me on your show. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> you know, it's interesting that in, in medicine, so much of what physicians say and do for and with patients runs through the primary care doctor. There's not a single clinic patient I've seen or I haven't either sent their primary care doctor a note about the clinic visit or asked him or her to help manage things like blood pressure or set up you know, age-appropriate cancer screenings and so forth. And all my friends who are in uh, specialties or subspecialties who are not in primary care act in, in a similar fashion. So it seems to me that the primary care doctor plays an enormous role in the medical system. Can you describe to us how you see the role of the primary care physician? with regard to a patient's health? Sure, I, I love this question. Thanks, Erin, as a, as a specialist for roping us in, the primary care doctors in when you, see, when you see our patients and asking us to manage these things as we are well equipped to do so. So it, I think it really is a privilege to be someone's physician in general, and especially someone's primary care physician. And just so that your listeners are aware, primary care physicians can come from a variety of specialties, right? You can do uh, primary care through um, family medicine, internal medicine, pediatrics, or even a specialty called medicine pediatrics. Um, I'm an internist, so my specialty is internal medicine. I do general outpatient internal medicine. And I think the role, I, I'm a, sort of a sports fan, so I, I think of the primary care physician as a quarterback of sorts, right? We help, as, as you sort of alluded to, we help to coordinate care. We have a very increasingly complex medical system, and a lot of my patients have complex chronic disease. And so I'm, you know, a lot of the time, you know, talking um, with my subspecialty colleagues in surgery, in rheumatology, even radiology often about the best plan of care going forward for my patients. But it's not just coordination of care, right? I mean, I think that one of the beauty of, of, of the specialty that I'm in and, and that I, I chose to do it um, is that I, I really value these longitudinal relationships. And we know that these relationships with patients, it's, it's bi-directional. And we know that that relationship by itself can be therapeutic. We know that um, primary care physicians and patients who are, are well-bonded with good rapport, those patients oftentimes have better health outcomes. They have more adherence to medications for chronic disease. They are more likely to uh, listen to our recommendations around vaccination. Um, so we help to, you know, help them navigate the healthcare system. We are educators. We provide preventative services. So I do pap smears and order cancer screenings and get vaccinations. And we really partner with the patients over time to help them meet their health goals. And I just think that's a, a, a privilege. And it's not just my opinion that this is helpful. There are many studies I'm sure that you're aware of as a physician that show that, um, you know, states that have higher ratios of primary care to, to patients with more primary care doctors, that those, those patients actually have better health outcomes, including lower rates of all-cause mortality and even mortality for some, some sp very serious specific diseases, heart disease, cancer, or stroke. Um, there was a recent study that was published in JAMA in 2019 that looked at the association of primary care physician supply with population mortality in the U.S. from like 
I think it was like 2005 to 2015, and they showed that a greater uh, primary care physician supply was associated with improved mortality. I think this is really important going forward, especially if we think about the disaster that's happening um, in the U.S. with regards to sort of physician access, especially in rural America, and how if we don't think about how our policies and sort of incentives um, incentivize folks to practice um, primary care in rural America, that health disparities there will just continue to increase, unfortunately. And it's interesting, too, that I think, uh, as you say, you know, primary care docs are sort of quarterbacks in a way and, and are in the center of a network diagram with the patient. So you interact with like countless specialists and subspecialists as you try to balance like recommendations and and your own kind of uh, view on what what's great for the patient's general health. So you have exposure to tons of different physicians uh, in various clinical contexts, which gives you, I think, a unique perspective in, into the qualities necessary to be like a great physician. So I, I wonder what characteristics you think make a, a great physician. Oh, that's that's such a good and interesting question. You know, I've thought a lot about this as I've grown in my vocation over the past several decades and now as I help others as a medical educator. And oftentimes applicants or students will ask me, you know, what's an important quality that I should that I should have, you know, if I think I want to be a doc? And my answer lately has been, you know, do you love your fellow human beings? Because I think that helps get into part to sort of motivation, right? I think you know, I know it's rare, but some people are motivated to go into medicine, perhaps for other things, maybe for um, for the, uh, the money or so-called prestige. Um, but those things will not sustain you in this job. This job is very demanding and calls often for various levels, as you know, of, of self-sacrifice at all levels, medical school, residency, fellowship, attending land. And if you don't in your heart have a curiosity and love for your fellow human being, I would recommend not considering medicine as your vocation. Uh, we have, you know, one of the most, I think, important jobs a person can have outside of being a parent or a teacher, people come to you and literally they, they put their lives in our hands. And this takes the utmost of attention to detail, integrity, dedication, compassion, and care. And what I always say is medical knowledge and procedural skills are, are of course, very important as well. But as I often say, you know, they are necessary, but insufficient to be a great physician. And since, you know, since you use the term great physician, I can't help but think of the great physician himself, Jesus Christ. And as a Christian person, I think we have much to learn from Jesus's example in his work, his use of touch in the encounter, his seeing people in the fullness of who they are, and the individual attention and care he always, he always showed people. I always laugh when people think of like physicians as these incredibly wealthy, uh, I mean, some I of them are, of course, but totally. <laughs> it, it's like <laughs> the cost of med school is ridiculous. Um, and then as a resident, you're uh, working all hours and getting paid very little. Um, exactly. And then you're paying exactly. off debt as an attending. So it's forever, forever and ever. I know. Forever, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I totally hear you. And I wonder if also, you know, it's interesting because it's so much of of uh, medical training revolves around these tests and being able to perform well on tests, um, or at least to pass tests. And these exams are not, it's not like, a, you know, quarterly semester kind of thing. The boards are uh, massive amounts of information that you sort of have to hold in your head or be able to recognize, at least on paper. So I wonder, do you think that some of that maybe is is misdirected in some way and that we're over-examining our trainees um, or aspirational physicians? Is there something that we miss in obsessing over these? 
Yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I don't want to discount the importance of, of medical knowledge. I mean, we have um, we have to be, you know, medically sharp in terms of our, our clinical acumen and judgment to be able to uh, appropriately diagnose and treat the patients who come to us. But, but I, I agree, I think, you know, the assessments that we currently have, and there are different types of assessments, as you know, there are not just medical knowledge assessments, but we have assessments with our students around um, communication skills with standardized patients and what are called OSCEs. Um, and, and I think they're trying to get at some different qualities and some different types of um, skills, communication skills, um, professionalism, some of these other domains that we assess. Um, but I, I and but I think I think the biggest sort of sometimes thing that comes out of these assessments is that that sort of is um, I think surprising to students is that you know in in sort of the preclinical years when they have all these different tests and examinations on their clinical um, uh, material before the on the wards you know there's there's just like a neat and clean answer that they choose and that's like the right answer and then they get into real medicine and they realize that boy there's there's just a lot of gray right. And I think one of the things we talk about is you're coming into medical school and residency definitely to learn some clinical information and some knowledge, but you're also coming in to like learn how to think. And, you know, it's it's one of those things that we we know that the, the medical knowledge for sure is important, but there are these other things that we learn along the way that are hard to assess for. And having the students be examined in a way that makes it seem like there's one right answer, I think it does them a disservice with how much actually ambiguity and gray area that there can be in real life medicine is, as, as you've, if you've seen probably in your practice as well. Yeah, it's, uh, it's remarkable. I, I would say maybe like a super majority of the time, the, um, the data aren't clear as to what exactly should be done for the patient in front of you, you know? Um, so learning to deal with that nuance and uncertainty is, is so important. And I think patients are surprised by that as well. You know, I think that statement, if, if a lot of, if you surveyed patients with what you just said, if they would be like shocked by that, I think people would be surprised by that, but that's the, that's the truth. And I think that just shows that we do need more, we do, we, we need, we need more investigation and sort of a scholar scholarship in these areas of, of patient care that we just don't have best practice for yet. There's much work to be done, but in the meantime, we have to be able to make sure our students understand how to handle this ambiguity in the gray area of medicine. And I think too, our students get really stressed out rightly so, but there's so much medicine to learn. And I'm like, yeah, that is, that is true, you know, but that's not the hardest part of this job. You know, I used to think like, my goodness, if I can just get my pharmacology done, my gr- anatomy down, I'd be a great doctor. And, and, and that, 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 that I need to learn those things. But the hardest part of this job also is like learning how to deal with these really complex things that you see in your clinic, whether it be your patients who suffer from uh, comorbid sort of addiction and mental health struggles and housing security and food insecurity and how to use your, uh, your team to help provide the best care for your patients. These types of things are the things that we struggle with, right? Um, the medical knowledge probably is not the hardest part sort of as we get sort of more along in our path of medicine. Absolutely, for sure. Uh, and I want to switch gears maybe a little bit, although I think it's 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 pretty related in some ways. So it, in an article for the Annals of Internal Medicine last year, you and your co-authors wrote that, um, quote, the microbiological revolution enabled physicians to claim to know the cause of an ever-increasing number of diseases. At the same time, new diagnostic and procedural tools enabled physicians to see deep within the body Rather than being cared for at home, seriously ill patients were admitted to a hospital. Science became an almost unquestioned source of authority. Physicians started seeing patients less as social beings with families and faith being essential parts of their lives and more as collections of malfunctioning organs defined by microscopic pathology and bacteriologic culture. 
Can you speak a little bit about this transition of focus and what it means for us as physicians and patients? Yeah, I mean, we, that piece in Annals of Internal Medicine, we were really, um, really fortunate to have that published um, last year. So it's a very short opinion piece, sort of a call to action around medical education, incorporating religion and spirituality. Um, and that, that transition that we briefly mentioned in this piece, right, has a long historical type of um, uh, genesis. And, and this, this transition in medicine, you know, happened over, a, I think, over a, sort of a long, slow period of time. <clears throat> you know, Foucault, who I know is a controversial figure, um, uh, but he does write about this sort of shift in clinical gaze that we talk about briefly in that piece. When he writes that, that you know, doctors started moving from the question of, you know, what, what's the matter with you to the more localized question of, you know, where does it hurt? And this transition sort of came around in like sort of the 18th, early 19th centuries. Um, and I know many of your listeners are probably familiar with Dr. Jeffrey Bishop. Um, he explores this transition really well in his book, which is, um, I think, uh, a must read for people interested in medicine is called the anticipatory corpse. Um, and he writes that the, the shift in focus uh, in part was birthed out of the French revolution and sort of came with that sort of this, this fear of metaphysics, right? So there's this move away during this time period from anything that was associated with the church, um, even hospitals as they were religiously affiliated in France at that time. And so medicine came to sort of hold in highest esteem that which could be measured and, and understood sort of this, this sort of practice of sensible, you know, controlled empiricism. Um, and I, I was recently researching this topic for a piece that I'm writing, and there's this wonderful piece that um, I always refer students to. It's written by Dr. Eric Cassell, and he wrote this piece in the New England Journal of Medicine in the 80s. It's called The Nature of Suffering and the Goals of Medicine. And he talks about this shift as well, and he sort of talks about this sort of Cartesian dualism that made it possible for science to sort of escape the control of the church by assigning sort of the non-corporeal spiritual realm to the church and like leaving the physical world to the domain of science. And then so in effect, right, the medical science, um, you know, has sort of ceded anything metaphysical in mankind to the church. And the church sort of has in return ceded the biological nature often of man to the medical sciences. And he goes on to write that this approach depersonalizes sick patients and therefore medicine sometimes itself therefore is a source of suffering. And so what's sort of flown out of this shift in clinical gaze is that, you know, medical education has become progressively more reductionistic in nature and focused on really the biomedical aspects mostly of illness and disease. And I think that that's really not ideal for patients, physicians, or learners, because, because again, many, many people came into medicine to treat and accompany persons through illness and suffering. But then in medical education, they're taught often through the hidden curriculum, but sometimes explicitly as well, that, that life is no more than molecules in motion, and they study progressively disembodied organ systems, and then they learn to see effectively their patients in a very fragmented way and aren't taught to see people in the fullness of their humanity. And this type of education then leads us to see our patients as sort of a bag of blood and bones or a clump of cells. And it causes, I think, a type of moral distress in our learners, I believe. I think medical education has taken note of this of late, and there are efforts to bring a type of humanism back to medical education, but there's a lot more work to be done because you know we're not technicians taking care of complex machines. We're human beings, in my opinion, who are taking care of the image bearers. Yeah, and it's really interesting, and this is why I think it sort of relates back to the question about the job of the primary care doctor, because it's much easier as a specialist or subspecialist to say, well, this is my arena, like this part of the body, and to ignore maybe the holistic picture or the, the human being 
as a whole. Right. I mean, I think the medical, this, <clears throat> this, this sort of view of the person is a fragmented, um, as a fragmented person, um, and, and this, uh, this idea that we sort of study, sort of, we start by studying people, but then start studying diseases, then start studying organs, and sometimes start studying receptors, and we lose the person in that, in that framework. And I think of that framework as reflected in this, like, hyper subspecialization of medicine. Again, we need our specialists for sure, but we also need um, to sort of reclaim this idea that <clears throat> primary care matters, I see all the time on Twitter and other sort of students who come to me who say that they tell their preceptors or their um, attendings that they want to do primary care and people look down on them. Like this isn't something that's worth their time. I remember when I was a chief resident here, this was in 2004, 2005, so a long time ago, my chair of my department of medicine said, you know, come to me. You know, I told my I want to do primary care. Come to me when you want to stop wasting your life. You know, I was like, wasting my life. Like, my goodness, you know, okay. that person's no longer the chair of medicine here. I just want to be really clear. But it just showed, right, that there was like this like very um, sort of stratified way that that academic medicine viewed primary care. And thank goodness that's changing. But I think we have one of the most important jobs that there is because there, there's nothing that a patient would tell me that isn't my job. Like a lot of times specialists would that, well, that's really not my area. And again, I, I, I understand that. But I'm just really, I'm just really feel privileged that I get to sort of address all of these things. And my goal is to provide a whole to care whenever possible. Um, and, uh, and I think that that's something that, thank goodness, has um, been recognized as something that has value. Yeah. And do you think it's, this is like a social status thing or a consumerism thing? Like, is it a money thing? I never really fully understood <laughs> the kind of hierarchy of like these medical yeah. specialties. Um, I mean, there's many factors in it, right? I think part of it, we know our specialists um, oftentimes make more money and there's sort of more prestige that's associated with 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 um, income in this country um, for reasons that are probably um, in part driven to sort of our capitalist consumerist sort of uh, culture. But but also, I think, you know, there's this, you know, the, the, the procedures, right, and the OR and all the, the technology we have is really is really glittery and sparkly. And I think that that's just really attractive to a lot of a lot of the learners. Um and it's very satisfying, right, for people to be able to fix something, right? To go in and to like open up a blocked artery or to like remove someone's diseased organ and put a new one in, right? And and again, that that is that is very, very important um work for sure. But that feels really good, you know, to do that. Um and we have a very, even now, I think we have a very um, focused um, educational system and sort of medical system on like curing things. Um, again, and that's good when we can cure, but guess what, folks, like a lot of people that we see in like U.S. America and that we'll continue to see are people with a chronic disease that um, are un sort of curable in a way, healing for sure can still occur in these diseases, especially if we're thinking about whole person care. But we're not training, I think, our, our students and our trainees to be able to be comfortable in that space as well and to sort of find the joy and the like, the, the meaning um, within accompanying patients with chronic disease. I think people like find more satisfaction in quickly fixing something and moving on. Um, and I think that that sometimes, again, in our culture of like quick fixes, that has more sometimes prestige than accompaniment through chronic illness. Um, so there's, there's, there's just a lot of factors that go into, I think, why specialists have maybe more prestige in the eyes of the students and, and, the, and, the, and the culture at large. But I think those are some of the factors. Hmm. I want to touch a little bit on religion because it's something that you mentioned um, a couple of times. And I remember in medical school that we were more or less taught 
if not explicitly and certainly implicitly, to avoid asking people about their religion, except in the context of wanting to see a chaplain uh, of some kind. Uh, it was like, don't probe too deeply or you might offend. It, like, it's not our area of expertise. And I remember the first time I was asked by a patient who was very sick in the ICU, a patient's spouse, asked me if I believed in God. And I felt uh, really uncomfortable because <laughs> medical school did not prepare me for the conversation. And uh, I don't think I'm alone um, in that same annals article from last year that you wrote. Um, you point out that 78% of medical students said their instructors had never or rarely addressed religion and spirituality with patients. Why is this so important? Um, so this is my, this is like my area of, of a sort of academic interest. So I feel like I, I could just talk about this forever and ever. So it's, it's so important. So, you know, our, our patients, as you know, Aaron, you know, come to us um, in some of the moments of deepest distress, you know, they'll ever experience. And we know that in, in such distress, existential questions of meaning and what's known as sort of spiritual distress occurs. So the model that I use when I think about this is um, Dr. Cicely Saunders um, has a model that I use, which I find is helpful in exploring this type of question. She's considered to be the mother of modern day palliative medicine. And she said that you know patients suffer or can be well in four intersecting domains, physical, social, emotional, and spiritual. And her model is like this circle that has these four quadrants and they have all these arrows going through them. And the model is called the model of total pain. So these types of sort of suffering intersect. So for example, we know, for example, when patients have under or untreated spiritual distress at the end of life, if that's not addressed, their physical pain can become quite refractory to pain medications and traditional therapies. But once their spiritual distress is addressed by the clergy or a chaplain, their pain improves. Similarly, many of your listeners may have sort of think, when you think about emotional pain and physical pain, Maybe there's this commercial that we played a few years ago that said, you know, something like, where does depression hurt? It hurts all over. It gets this concept that we know that people who have a history of trauma or ongoing sort of mental anguish have more pain syndromes and increased pain um, concerns. So medical education is quite good, as you uh, mentioned, at teaching physicians how to diagnose and pick up physical pain and somewhat good at teaching us how to pick up emotional distress, but spiritual distress you know, social distress, much less so, right? But thankfully, this is changing. If you look to see, is this a topic, you know, religion, spirituality, that is even that even matters to our patients? If you look at groups um, like Pew Research, um, you know, their data shows that the great majority of U.S. Americans endorse a belief in God. And if you look at certain subgroups like Latino or Black persons, they have higher levels of religiosity than whites. And interestingly, they're, they're not deists, right? So they don't just believe that God sort of created the world and sort of like a clockmaker and just plopped it down and it just runs. They actually believe, if you look at their beliefs, that, that God's intimately involved in their lives. And this includes the way that they think about their illness, recovery, and treatment in our hands as medical providers. And these beliefs intersect with how they make medical decisions or pursue certain types of care or don't pursue certain types of care, especially at the end of life. So, you know, if we want to be as patient-centered as possible any attempt to engage patients in shared decision-making without understanding how their deepest commitments intersect with their view of their illness and decision-making, in my opinion, is an impoverished care plan. And research has shown, too, that patients want to have conversations with us when they're hospitalized about their religious and spiritual concerns, but they don't have an opportunity to do so. So there was a study by 
Carlin when he was still at Chicago and his colleagues a few years ago was published in JGIM that showed that 40 some percent of inpatients at their hospital in Chicago desired a discussion with their healthcare providers about their religious and spiritual concerns, but like less than half reported the ability to do so. And that's a gap in care that I think is unacceptable. And so for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with what spiritual distress means, that can present with questions um, in patients like such as like, why would God allow this to happen to me? Or, you know, what's going to happen when I die? And our patients suffer oftentimes silently with these feelings. And we need to be able to teach our learners how to recognize this type of suffering, just as they would with any other type of suffering, including physical suffering. And then how to utilize their interprofessional teams, chaplains, spiritual care, a community clergy, to get the patient all that the care that they that they deserve and that they need. Yeah. And and what can be done, and I guess this ties back maybe to to the work you're doing with the program on health, spirituality, and religion at, at the University of Michigan. Um, what can be done to make physicians more comfortable speaking with their patients about religion? Because you know, physicians, I think, come from all religious backgrounds. Um, you know, atheists, agnostic, or believers, uh, and I imagine that the comfort levels are probably very different depending on where the medical student or uh, residency applicant is is coming from. Yeah, I mean, it's my belief that physicians need to be comfortable speaking with patients from all backgrounds and beliefs, regardless of their own belief systems. Specifically, when it comes to speaking about religion, you know, we make, you know, you talked about how you were like, you know, uncomfortable with this, and I get that. And we, in our Annals of Internal Medicine piece, we make an analogy of talking about religion and this topic in a way that parallels the way that people used to think about talking to patients about their sexual health, right? So we used to think, gosh, we can't ask people about their sexual health. We used to think it's not my job. It's too private, right? It's not related to their health. But now we think, of course, we need to ask about this topic and we're more comfortable with it. Well, taking a spiritual history, you know, has become the sort of last taboo in medicine, And we can help people feel more comfortable with normalizing these conversations in medicine, helping people understand the intersection between religion, spirituality, and healthcare, and give them the tools to start these conversations. So my um, research team did a qualitative study last year that was published in the American Journal of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, where we looked at barriers to addressing religious and spiritual needs of patients in the ICU here at the University of Michigan. We interviewed um, pulmonary critical care attendings and fellows. And then um, looked at the themes that emerged from our interviews. And some of the barriers were obvious, right, like lack of time. But interestingly, one of the top themes that emerged that was a barrier to um, um, the physicians addressing religious and spiritual needs with patients was um, if if there was discordant views um, between the physicians and the patients. So, for example... Physicians were less likely to bring up this topic if they, for example, were Christian and their patient was Muslim. You know, physicians aren't a group that often likes to look like they don't know what they're talking about. And so in these situations, the physicians expressed fear at sort of saying the wrong thing or inadvertently offending someone. And so they felt really insecure in such conversations, so they avoided them. And I think people will hopefully become more comfortable in these conversations and partnering with our spiritual care team and providing whole person care with increased education and ongoing conversations to normalize why this is important. You know, some efforts that we're working on, my team, um, one, um, a continuing medical education um, innovations grant from Michigan Medicine to hold um, a continuing medical education event 
in the hopefully we're going to run it in person in the fall. We've named the course Bridging the Gaps, Incorporating Religion and Spirituality in Whole Person Care. It's going to be a half day event open to anyone interested in patient care, you know, nurses, physicians, chaplains about how to increase competency in this space. And my work has uh, my group has presented workshops on this topic at various academic conferences across the country over the years. And we've increased curriculum for our learners here at our medical school and we've done faculty development. You know, change is really slow. We're hopeful that with, you know, medical education in its efforts to reclaim a focus on whole person care, that this topic will be one with which more people are comfortable. And just if you think about some of the, we have actually some validated tools um, that people can start to use if they want to become more comfortable in this space. Um, you know, one very simple question that um, one of my um, preceptors taught me about sort of thinking about distress and specifically spiritual distress is just, you know, asking your patient, you know, are you at peace? And just seeing what comes out of that question, all types of distress will emerge that then you can sort of think about who best to involve to help that patient. Um, even in the outpatient setting, Christina Pachelski at GW has come up with um, the FICA questions um, for, it's an acronym for FICA, which stands for the F is like the faith, like, um, you know, asking patients, you know, do you have a faith or spiritual belief that um, that you want to tell me about. The I is sort of importance. Like, you know, a lot of people will maybe say on a demographic sheet that they're, let's say, Catholic, but, you know, asking patients, like, is this belief system something that's important to you? The C stands for community. So asking patients, um, do you have a community of um, people within your congregation or within your, um, within your belief system that support you? And how do they support you? Because we know people's faith communities can be very helpful with um, assisting with transportation and prayer and food sometimes. And then the A is, you know, address. So how is, is your healthcare provider um, can I address your spiritual and religious beliefs in the in the course of your healthcare? And again, anytime you ask patients sensitive questions, whether you're doing a spiritual history or a sexual history, right, or a birth history, whatever that is, you want to do the two Ps, which is the purpose and the permission. You know, a purpose is like, this is why I'm asking you these things, right? I want to get to know you as a whole person or saying something like, gosh, um, we know that patients with chronic disease or if you're telling someone sort of not great news, right? We know that patients in your situation oftentimes have many sources of support. If it's okay, I'm going to ask you about sources of support now, right? And the permission is the second P, always giving patients, because there's a hierarchical oftentimes relationship in medicine that we want to, you know, acknowledge. Um, the second P is permission. Is it okay, right, if I ask you about these things? So you can always give the patient an out if they don't feel comfortable. So I think, you know, these types of conversations in, 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 in academic spaces, writing, workshops, curricula, faculty development, you know, we can only sort of do, you know, um, what we can at our own place. But at Michigan Medicine, I've been really impressed with our group here and our um, the openness of our place to sort of think about this topic as it relates to whole person care. It sounds like a lot of this is about trying to get as many um, physicians or physicians in training exposed or nurses or um, as possible, because I, when I think back about learning how to take a sexual history was incredibly uncomfortable yeah. um, to just bring that up. And, and now I feel a lot less uncomfortable doing that. It right. seems like very much a natural part of the, the interview with the patient. So yes, that's, that's awesome. And this ties a little bit to, to burnout too, which is now a huge issue in, in medicine. I don't know when it started to become a problem, but certainly, I mean, I've been practicing as an attending only for about a year and a half, but I, I remember as a medical student, it was certainly brought up and we were given like wellness modules and 
and uh, sleep modules. So you'd be up late doing your sleep modules and not sleeping. <laughs> Perfect. Um, right. Yeah. So there's a, a study that found up to 15% of medical students reported suicidal ideation at some point during their medical education. And then on average, 29% of residents or so report depression or symptoms of depression with burnout symptoms affecting over 50%. And then across all 29 medical specialties, the overall rate of burnout in 2019 stood at 42%. So it's a real issue. And and in a recent article in the Journal of General Internal Medicine, you and your co-authors argue that spirituality and religion might actually help with physician burnout. How might that be? Yeah, I mean, as you you rightly discussed here, there's really a a crisis of burnout in medicine that's only been exacerbated um, by the stressors of the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, one of the hallmarks of burnout, as you know, is depersonalization, right, where the provider starts to see the patient as a non-person. And when that happens, you know, bad things happen. So we know that burnout is really bad for physicians. We know, as you said, there's... um, studies that show that when you're burnt out, um, a a physician or other healthcare provider will have an increased risk of substance abuse and suicidal ideation. But also, you know, burnout is a patient safety issue because this directly affects patients. So rightly so, the vocation is actively seeking to do whatever it can to to remedy this terrible crisis. Um, But like many complicated issues, burnout's a multifaceted problem and really deserves a multifaceted approach. But we know, at least in part, that burnout can be um, helped or something prevented by having a sense of meaning in the work that you do. And we know from many physicians, trainees, and medical students, they make meaning in their vocation through the lens of their religious and or spiritual commitments. One study that we quote in our piece showed that up to 30% of physicians entered into vocation of medicine in part from their religious and or spiritual commitments. And then what happens is they get here into, you know, into medicine And then we make it seem like they have to check their faith at the door to practice medicine or to be, you know, considered a legitimate scientist. And then what happens is the one great pathway they had to make meaning in their vocation and a huge part of themselves is then shut off from their professional identity, which we argue in this piece is totally counterproductive. And there are many studies that we quote in our piece that having a religious and or spiritual commitments are protective against burnout at every single stage of training in medicine. There was one study that was done by Tyler Vanderweel um, at Harvard and his colleagues. It was published in JAMA Psychiatry last year that suggested, for example, that religious service attendance um, was associated with a lower risk of death from despair among healthcare professionals. So we really shouldn't make, you know, our our, our colleagues who have, you know, um, who come into our space with um, existing religious and spiritual commitments, we really shouldn't make them feel like they can be like, you can be a religious, you know, person on Sunday, for example, and a physician Monday through Saturday, but instead help them understand how they can be a Christian physician, let's say, seven days a week with an integrated personal and professional identity. Again, we can't expect our physicians to take care of whole persons if they themselves haven't been treated as whole persons and can't bring the entirety of themselves to work. And in our in our larger conversations around diversity, equity, inclusion, it would be hypocrisy for us to say that, you know, we welcome a diversity of physicians in all the ways they can be diverse, except for religious diversity. I mean, that wouldn't make any sense, and we should be calling that out. I wonder, too, if 
acknowledging the spirituality and religion of a patient uh, or being trained to do so would reduce the depersonalization because that is a very humanizing kind of thing to talk to a patient about their spirituality and religious beliefs as well. Oh, totally. I mean, we know that what I see, what I've seen often in some of my colleagues who suffer burnout is they just want to get out of the hospital or out of clinic as fast as possible. And they started spending less time with patients. And they're like, if I can just get out of here and go play golf or do a run or be home, you know, then I'll feel better. But that actually exacerbates, I think, the burnout because then they're connecting with their patients less so, which again, we know that connecting with patients deeply actually is like is very meaningful. And actually, we know that meaning making it work helps protect you against burnout. Like I've been um, interviewing residency applicants this week and, you know, I was asked them about sort of um, their hobbies and that kind of thing and what they think that they're going to have to have for themselves to stay well in the course of this career. And, and people definitely, it's so important. I have so, I have so many hobbies. Like I love my hobbies and it's important to have hobbies, right? You need to think about your time outside of medicine, what you're going to do in that space that, that um, helps you flourish. But boy, if we don't think about, cause you know, medicine sort of entails, you're going to spend a lot of hours at work too. So if you don't think about how the time at work, 80 plus hours a week are going to add to your sense of meaning making and flourishing, then like you're in for a rough ride, right? So, I mean, I'm a, I'm a newer Christian person. I was spent most of my life as a, I would say as an anti-theist slash secular humanist, but I'm just really thankful actually for my, for my faith now, because I, I, I have this sort of theology of medicine that I, that I speak about, but this, this, this idea that when I'm see, seeing patients in my, in my clinic or face to face that, you know, I, that, 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 that has inherent meaning because I'm taking care of um, the image bearers, the image bearers of God. And that's sacred space, you know, and, and I think when we have meaning making that we can drive at work from whatever our commitments are, whether they be spiritual commitments, religious commitments, that we know that that can be beneficial because if there was this big, um, the NAMS report, um, which is the National Academy of Medical Sciences, there was this big, you know, task force report, several hundred pages that came out, I think last year or the year before, and they specifically dedicated to the crisis of physician burnout. And one of their sort of solutions, there are many in that report, um, they say to sort of recover us out of this downward spiral out of burnout is to have um, some type of reclaiming of meaning making at work. And again, for we're not prescribing religion, spirituality, but for our colleagues who already have those commitments, like I hear all the time about, you know, religion and spirituality being something that, you know, um, oftentimes our providers feel like there's actually some discrimination and bias against them. But when we think about all the ways people are well, can we at least legitimize that this is a pathway for some people and be able to sort of make it seem like, gosh, like this is okay, and not make it seem like they've got to check those beliefs at the door for them to be accepted here as academic physicians or as physician scientists. Because again, you're shutting off a huge pathway of meaning making for people that we know from so much data actually is protective for them in this long career that... <clears throat> involves great self-sacrifice. Right. I, I want to shift gears a little bit again, because you can't go on a medicine podcast and not mention COVID, of course. Um, and it, we can't seem to escape it. And so much, I think, of how we've dealt with this pandemic has brought underlying ethical issues to the surface. In January of this year, which I guess is now be almost a year ago, which is wild, you wrote an article about how COVID-19 has exposed problems with the way we treat our elderly patients. And you touched on in particular some of the visiting policies that were implemented during the pandemic. 
and and also how we plan to distribute medical resources. Can you speak a bit about how we failed our elderly population during COVID-19 and and why we ought to really be distressed by this? Yeah, so that, gosh, it seems like I wrote that piece like years ago. I can't believe it was less than a year ago. But yeah, I, I wrote that piece as an op-ed and it was I was really lucky to have it published in America Magazine, which um, is a Jesuit um, publication. And it was in response to our visitor policies that we had here at Michigan Medicine. And they weren't just unique to Michigan Medicine. These visitor policies were enacted, very restrictive policies at hospitals across the country. And these were going on, um, uh, you know, during the height of the pandemic. And and my piece sort of, I wrote about how I saw them as, that they disproportionately adversely affected my elderly patients. So, you know, my older patients at the time often um, were telling me that they sort of delayed care or wouldn't come into our hospital for really serious things because they really couldn't imagine being at our place. Oftentimes, you know, because they need family at the bedside to assist them with the care team because of sometimes language or hearing or cognitive difficulties. And this placed them at sort of worse outcomes, you know, because of this. And I totally understand, you know, the concept behind the visitor policies. You know, I, I, I understand the transmission of COVID and how bad it is. I, I contracted COVID in March of 2020, taking care of a COVID positive patient. I don't discount COVID and how serious it is and how important protections are, you know. And these visitor policies, though, you know, are, are a good, right, that are posed in order to decrease the risk of COVID transmission in the healthcare setting. And I, am, I totally recognize this is a very important thing. But in the piece, I sort of question how we rank and sort of order the various often competing goods in healthcare and sort of who gets left behind in these decisions. I was really encouraged that after the piece came out, several people emailed me from hospitals across the country telling me how they brought my piece to their hospital ethics committee and their policies were changed as a result of my piece. You know, I take care of mostly older patients as a general internist and really have been very distressed about how they've suffered in a really, I think, disproportionate way as, as have other um, subpopulations during the pandemic. And I think this is in part, as my good friend Charlie Camosi points out, because of our, you know, our often ageist and ableist culture that effectively discards certain segments of our population whose dignity we often find inconvenient. And this includes not only the elderly, of course, but the prenatal child, um, oftentimes people with disabilities, people experiencing homelessness, and, and sometimes even those with substance use disorder. And so we see this play out in the decisions made during the pandemic regarding the crisis in the nursing homes, for example, or certain policies that were proposed regarding healthcare utilization and how, you know, resources would be rationed that would often really favor younger persons. And this should be really distressing to us in, in part because we're all going to be either dependent, sick, and or older someday. And how we treat the most vulnerable in our population says a lot about who we are as a society. And, you know, really thank goodness for Professor Kamosi and colleagues like him who are calling out this tragedy and helping bring people together to do better moving forward. Yeah, I I noticed, I mean, it's once you're sort of attuned to it, you see it in so many different places. I just think of even the recent Cuomo stuff and people, I mean, the what kind of brought both of them down was um, the Me Too movement in a way. And there's a, a temptation to say, yes, and yes, that stuff is bad. And also, you know, Andrew Cuomo's policy of basically forcing nursing homes to take uh, COVID positive patients led to, you know, I don't know how many deaths, but certainly thousands of 
elderly patients in nursing homes died uh, at the height of the pandemic. And nary a mention by most people with a few, you know, isolated voices on, on Twitter and the news. And it just seems like we sort of push that to the side a little bit because, well, they were, you know, they're elderly in their nursing homes and so whatever. And I, I just felt like, oh my gosh, this is really kind of terrible the way we're, we're talking about this, I think. No, totally. I mean, I, I, I just, I, that term that Francis uses, and I know Kamosi writes about a ton, is this, this concept of, of throwaway culture, right? That we, we, we effectively throw away um, certain segments of the population, again, whose dignity we find inconvenient. And, and, and Charlie writes about in his new book um, about how, you know, uh, we, we are starting to see actually certain segments of the population, especially, you know, older patients, elderly patients who maybe even have, you know, cognitive decline because of dementia and such is, is non-persons. If you see someone as a non-person, it's totally fine, right? Society says to sort of like not care about them as much as like a quote productive member of society. I, 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 all the time, you know, I, I see even that language, right, seep into, you know, oftentimes um, uh, the medical space here where, um, you know, it, it, it's just part of the, the, I think, this sort of culture that's been sort of, I think, developed over the years, again, in part because of um, our, our very sort of overall ageist or youth obsessed, um, you know, um, culture, but where we we think about certain patients um, as having less value inherently than um, patients who are like, you know, again, productive members of society. And, and when you have this stratification based on value that's, ex- that's sort of extrinsically placed upon people because of societal sort of um, value setting, that sets up, you know, this tiered system where certain people effectively are going to be discarded. And, 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 we, and oftentimes it's not called out because we don't even recognize that we're part of that system, right? I think it's, it, it's like, you know, when I was a medical student here, I think sort of the, just the way that I was sort of taught, again, this is a long time ago and things are much better now, but I think I was just sort of raised in, up in, in, as a doctor as like a utilitarian. And, and we, know that, we know that if you look at physicians in particular, um, they oftentimes, if you, for example, will ask them, and again, it's, it's Charlie who taught me this sort of stat, but if you look at uh, physicians, you ask them, what do you think that that, that person's quality of life is, right? Um, someone maybe who has a significant disability um, or a, let's say a late dementia. And the physicians will invariably sort of say that they think that person's quality of life is much lower than if you ask the patient themselves. So physicians inherently, because oftentimes we are very able-bodied, we come from a, a place of privilege where like we put a lot of stock in like running and rock climbing and all these like intellectual and physical um, sort of attributes that we find glittery and shiny, like we would think, my goodness, like this person has really no quality of life. And then that, that has real consequences. Like even the tragedy that wasn't really spoken about um, by a ton of people um, that happened, I think it was the summer of last, where um, Mr. Hickson, who was a black man in Texas who um, had suffered anoxic brain injury after an auto possible cardiac arrest, and who had significant um, motor and cognitive deficits, who was in the hospital in Texas with, with COVID-19. And, and his family recorded, and it was on YouTube, a conversation between um, the doctors and the and the wife. And Mr. Hickson had like this large family and such. And, and, and the doctors caught on the, the tape talking about how they were going to um, not offer Mr. Hickson some medications to treat COVID. It was like remdesivir at the time, maybe index. Um, because the doctor said, why would we offer these treatments to this man? He doesn't have any 
quality of life. Um, and, the, and he's on tape saying because he's not a walking and talking person. I mean, that's just basically flat out ableism. And Mr. Mr. Hickson died, you know. So I think just having people like, well, what does this matter? It matters because our policies and our decision making and our um, you know, our algorithms um, sort of flow out of this ideology. And again, I'm, not that all physicians think this way, but again, we need to have discussions about these things. So I think a lot of us have fallen to this sort of mindset um, where we don't even realize that it's, that, it's, that, that it's out there. This is one other thing that sort of, I think, speaks to throwaway culture is even it less talked about than the nursing homes is what's been happening in our correctional facilities during COVID-19. So before before the pandemic started, um, I was involved in training prisoner palliative health aides at, at the women's prison here. And, um, you know, uh, there was a prison reentry committee at the law school that I was part of. And, you know, we talked about all the time, you know, gosh, like the people who are involved in corrections, like talk about throwaway culture, like that's the sort of the last segment of society who, you know, it's sort of acceptable still to sort of say, like, we don't care what happens to these people, you know, again, because oftentimes these these folks right in different subsets of, of, of society don't have as much people advocating for them. And they're effectively discarded. And again, if we if we feel as, as a lot of people believe that every certain every human being has inherent and viable dignity, um, because of the type of creature that they are human beings, then then we should find this type of um, uh, sort of um, language and, and policymaking completely unacceptable. Prisons were many of them had massive like COVID breakouts. I remember right, um, right. because of cramped quarters, right. no isolation, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I, we're gonna just try and tie this all together because you know the idea of of depersonalization, the idea of burnout, uh, these things. You know, it, it it sort of like gets back to this idea of spirituality and religion and how that can be. Um, a bomb in some way for for all of these things. Maybe not the cure-all, but certainly the idea of, of opening up to them, especially as trainees and as physicians, um, seems like it's really important. Um, so thank you so much, Kristen. Really appreciate you taking the time today. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate it. And I, I, um, I, I'm thankful for folks like you and, and for some of my colleagues who I talked about on, on the show today um, who are doing good work to uh, to promote sort of a, a new vision going forward um, that encompasses um, meaning making and whole person care and speaking up for, for the vulnerable in our society. Thanks. Great. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn about our programs, events, podcasts, and more.